was a really miserable existence and I and I was getting to that point of heading towards quite a dark place of of you know what is the point what's the point of being an architect what's the point even of living I got to that point of thinking those sorts of thoughts it was really quite dark and I was thinking you know is it really worth being alive and that was at the point where I was like, what am I thinking? This is this is not right to be thinking like this. And I I knew that it was him that was causing this situation and that I was feeling bad about this situation and he was the cause of it. And I said, no, he is not going to beat me. No way am I letting him beat me. And that's where I sort of put a kind of drew the line. Welcome to the She Leads Business Show, where I shine the spotlight on female owners of growing small and medium-sized businesses. You're in the right place if you want to ditch the stress and firefighting, stop working too many hours, despite having team members, and never compete on price again. I'm Una Doyle, founder of creativeflow.tv. I'm a speaker, business strategist, and impact coach. Business owners hire me to help them to build a business they could sell tomorrow, but they probably don't want to because it's highly profitable. It's fun to run because they and their team are in creative flow and they get to make a bigger impact on the world. In every episode, myself and my guests share the strategies, stories and wisdom to help you to achieve this too. Now, let's get on with the show. Hello, 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 and welcome to She Leads Business. And I'm very excited to have with me here today, Jane Leach of iArchitect. Now, iArchitect was set up in 2009, following redundancy. And Jane mainly works with eco-conscious homeowners, and she helps them to extend and improve their homes so they can live a planet-friendly life with more ease and pleasure. And she loves working with older buildings. So, Jane, welcome. Hello, that was such a lovely sounding introduction. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> well, th- this is you. Like, this is from the conversations that we've had already. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So Jane, what I always like to do is find out more about the person before we start diving into the business. So uh, t- tell me more about who is Jane? Tell me about your childhood. Where did you grow up? How big is your family? Well, I don't have a huge family in terms of my, I've got a mum and a dad and a brother. And I grew up in, in Liverpool in, in an area called Toxteth, which is, you know, quite renowned. It was where the riots were, the race riots were there at the same time as they were in Brixton in the 80s. So it's an interesting place to grow up for sure. I was really young at the time of the riots, but I experienced the kind of the aftermath of it and and I saw the change you know I remember it but I was really I don't know exactly how old I was maybe five or six I'm not sure but I remember mostly really little details like there was a chippy that we used to go to that had this beautiful solid white cool marble countertop you don't see many (laughs) fish and chip shops with a solid marble countertop and my mum used to not round here anyway (laughs) my mum used to sit me on there and and there was a really kind lady who worked there she always gave me a chip you know and and that disappeared 
And so there were like all these little things that just disappeared and the space felt smelt like burning buildings for quite a long time and lots of gaps. And so that destruction that happened and that change was really, really influential in terms of my understanding of how we are affected by our environment and how the place that we grow up, you know, that our memories are associated with it and our personal history associated with it and how that can be so disrupted, you know, when I I mean, I've never lived through a war, but I imagine people who do would have similar sort of, well, much worse experiences, I imagine. But, you know, those kind of the changes that impacts you. Do you remember feeling unsafe at that time? Yeah, I, I don't really, you know, we, I don't really remember feeling particularly unsafe, but because I felt, you know, quite secure with my parents and I didn't see any, any violence or anything like that, but there was a huge change in the neighborhood and I, and I could tell that something big had happened and I just mm. didn't really understand it. Yeah, it's it's so interesting how the seeds for who we become are planted so young, so often. I find that really interesting. How did you enjoy school? Were you, did you love it or hate it? Oh, my my junior school was like it was a, it was quite a deprived area. So there was a lot of a lot of social deprivation, and a lot of people were live, lived in quite with quite limited means. And I think that that a lot of the children that I went to primary school with had quite had perhaps experienced quite a lot of violence and abuse in their lives. And I was bullied quite badly in my primary school, and I think that was. Just, I mean, it's hard to to know, but, you know, looking back on it, I think a lot of the children who were instigating that had were having pretty bad experiences in their life. And I don't know why they picked on me particularly, but maybe it was jealousy because I did have quite a, a secure home life. You know, I didn't have any, you know, big negative, violent or abusive situations that I was living through. So... I think maybe that was a reason. It's hard to know. You try, you try and kind of justify it and understand what what was the reason, what what was the purpose behind what happened. But yeah, I did. I did experience a lot of bullying throughout my my junior school, and then I went to a very unusual secondary school where which was in a completely different area, different part of the city, two buses to get to. And that then that changed. It was a very different type of family in that area. So they were much more on the whole, you know, much better situation for, for those children. And it was it was an unusual school because it was it was a special selective school. So you could there were two criteria. You could either be Jewish or musical so if you weren't Jewish and you had to do music exams and, and have like an interview and an assess a musical ability sort of assessment and I kind of didn't pass <laughs> I was on top of the list I was I was in the reserve list and some another child didn't end up going to that school who had been selected which which you know my mum was phoning up regularly to see where I was on the the list and I did eventually get in but yeah so I was sort of always kind of average there were some absolutely incredible musicians who went to my school just amazing talent and I was just able I would say musically 
what impact do you think that had on you and your self-esteem? Oh, probably quite a big impact because, you know, there were lots of times when I went for like the solo part in the choir and I didn't get it because, you know, I wasn't as good as other people. (laughs) I was all right, but there were so many, there were so many really talented people in my school and they were they were just, you know, like grade eight piano, age 11 sort of thing. <laughs> they were just very, very high, high achieving musically and and naturally talented. Some some children there, they couldn't read music, but they you could they could pretty much listen to anything and then just play it. They were pitch perfect. And, you know, they're just incredible talent. So in comparison, then I suppose I've always sort of seen myself as a fairly average person. <laughs> like I've not ever really excelled, but I think I have a really high standard of what excelling means. And, you know, I know that a lot of people do consider me to, to have excelled, but I don't necessarily. So, yeah, I probably have a kind of an interesting rating of what's achievement. And yet there clearly must have been other children in that school who got in because they were Jewish who weren't necessarily musically talented. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't just you. No, no, but because I wasn't Jewish. So you, you were, if you were Jewish, you, you didn't, I, I guess, I don't know, because it was quite a, a weird system. Like if you were Jewish, you were, see, you were sort of treated in a slightly different way. You had some slightly different classes, a different assembly. And so I think that you're, you were judged from a different set of criteria. So if you're in based on the musical side, then you were judged against the other kids on the musical side. There were some who were Jewish who were quite good at music as well, but they they were like they didn't have to be. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. They didn't have to be good at it. Some of them were interesting because like it, it's it's a story of like two very extremes going from the first school to that school. I, I'm I'm just trying to imagine you know one school where you were being bullied and you know been there many. Many of us have, right? And then to be in this other school, which has totally different standards and you may be, you know, you're not surrounded by people who unfortunately were perhaps experiencing a lot more hardship and abuse in their life and then kind of passing that on to other people because they didn't at the time know any better. To be in these very different surroundings, but all of a sudden there's this weight of expectations on your shoulders. Yeah, I mean, it, it, these events cannot help but shape us. So what was it that you did love as a child? What was it that really excited you? I always loved to dance and like I I think had quite a vivid imagination and would would often make outfits for the fairies out of flowers and things that I found in the garden and I'd, you know, create these little outfits and leave them out for the fairies to collect. I mean, obviously that was when I was really young, but I had, you know, these quite imaginative, creative suits that that's really what I've always loved to do. And, And in my junior school, I think because they were trying to overcome some of the struggles that a lot of children had, we we didn't really focus very much on things like maths, science or things like that. We we did a lot of poetry writing. We did a lot of painting and we did a lot of African dance classes. So lots of very creative stuff, expressive stuff. And, and interestingly, in my junior school, I was like picked for Mary and I was the one who had to sing all the solos and stuff. So it was kind of, it's quite an interesting contrast where 
in the junior school I was kind of quite you know I was one of the brightest you know the one higher act achieving ones and then in the senior school I was like much further down in the pile yeah yeah that's interesting I've never thought about that before well yeah it's when we're young how we interpret what happens to us and our environments is actually what's most important. That's actually more important than what actually happens. That's so true. Yeah, that really is true. And then and then when you're thinking about things as an adult going back there, you've got a different perspective and you can kind of perhaps relearn or or re-understand the situation and and kind of heal from some of the things perhaps in that way. Oh, we can definitely heal. I've done a lot of that myself. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's one of those things that, you know, it's a seven year course. <laughs> You've got to go. It's, a, you know, a lot of, I meet a lot of people who say, oh, well, I would have loved to have been an architect, but I just couldn't, you know, doing that long course. That's what put me off, which I always think is a little bit of a, well, <laughs> a bit pathetic, to be honest, because anything that you want to do takes time. And reality is that, you know, to get good at something and to establish yourself in any career takes years. So, yeah, OK, it takes you. It, well, on typically, like the average, I think, is like between eight and nine years for an architect to fully qualify as an architect. It's, you know, you you leave home, you start your life start to learn about architecture and yes it it takes time to fully qualify but I'm fully qualified now so I'm obviously I know it all (laughs) now I'm ready to take on the big project and and unfortunately it's not like that it's there's a lot of skills and a lot of experience that goes into to being an architect and it's it's not really the case that you've you finish your studies and then suddenly you're ready to do everything not not really I don't think but some people, they, they manage to land these amazing jobs uh, or projects, even in their own name at that very early stage. And I'm sure it's a bit of a, a walk through fire, kind of, you know, trying having to get to the point of actually getting a project complete because it's there's so much more to it. And you're not quite fully prepared. You're, you're, you're prepared, maybe, but you're not fully there in, in solidly being able to deliver. I remember hearing from someone who had studied architecture in university and they asked a successful architect, so how do I become a successful architect? Like they were taught, I can't remember the name of the person, but they, it was someone who was like a world renowned architect. And they said, well, the first thing you need to understand is that it, you're going to be old by the time you're successful. Because the typical project life cycle of, you know, like for these big projects where you've got, you know, famous buildings kind of things that, you know, they can take five years or more to to do one project, sometimes longer than that. So if you think about becoming skilled in terms of, well, how many cycles do you get to go through in order to learn? Because you've got to kind of, you know, learn, do, review repeat and you don't get to do that that many times as as that kind of architect did you have aspirations to be that kind of architect or were you always interested in like I call them like star architects <laughs> okay <laughs> like the big the big name 
and the you know the Sterling Award winner and all of that. Yeah, I mean, who doesn't? <laughs> you know, and like their heart of hearts wants to be like you know the the award winning amazing like person who's got the incredible because a lot of it is, comes down to actually the opportunity to work on those projects. It's you know there's a lot in terms of like who you know is really comes down to a lot of that and look you know as well you know a lot a lot of a lot of projects are won through competitions which means that you have to do a lot of free work basically to win a competition you you do a lot of free work and there's a lot of people entering and you know if yours gets chosen by the team who's selecting the the winning one that that's I mean that's one way to win projects there are many other ways to win projects but yeah I mean it's an exciting world to to have that sort of accolade and you know be considered one of the top so yeah I would say that certainly like at university that would have been something I was quite keen on that idea in a way but on the other hand I wasn't very keen on working for you know going off and working basically giving my life over to that kind of you you can go and work for these like big big practices with the big star names like Zaha Hadid's practice and you know all these different ones and you basically give your life to them completely for five ten years like like you're expected to work really long hours I don't know I I have broader interests and I think that that to me is is important to bring that into that influences my architecture as well you know all the I feel like architects sat there in an office for like 70 hours a week which I have done for a period of time but you know, you really don't have time to do very much in your personal life and you don't have time to get much inspiration. You don't, ha- you know, those that creative inspiration needs to come from somewhere. And I think if you're just working a whole time and, you know, you grab a pizza on your way home, you go to sleep, you co- come in in the morning, grab grab a coffee on the way into work because you never you never got time to like go to the supermarket and stuff like that. New normal things that normal people do <laughs> you just you're just eating takeaway stuff the whole time and it's not healthy I don't think it's not it's not a good life balance and it you just I just don't think that it's worth it so that that was my conclusion I didn't want to live like that I imagine that a lot more younger architects coming through will probably have the same attitude. So it's going to be interesting to see how the whole industry changes because of that, because, you know, people your age and and below there, you know, they are more focused on living, as you say, and not handing their entire life over. And it's interesting, the person who told that story about talking to the successful architect, you know, he said to them, well, how do I become successful faster? And the architect said, don't be an architect. And he didn't. So he went and worked, you know, went and got into business instead. <laughs> so you've taken a, a different approach. You must have worked in some other architects practices before you set up yourself. What was that experience like? I worked in several practices. The The first practice I worked in was the place that I did work experience at age 14. That was run by a friend of the family and 
that's one <laughs> one thing that is really key actually to get into architecture is to know people it's really quite difficult to to become an architect without knowing people and there are lots of downsides to that because your the the built environment i mean yesterday was international women's day as we we're recording this and the built environment is a reflection or it's there it caters for everybody but the fact is that only 15 to 21% of architects are female and that's one of the highest percentages in you know in any of the construction professions and so the majority of the design work the the procurement the decision making and the construction is being done by generally white middle class men and so the built environment very much caters for them but doesn't often you know it's not as inclusive as it could be for women for you know for every every other difference there i i guess there are quite maybe a reasonable number of gay men perhaps perhaps the, there's some diversity in 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 sexuality but i don't think there's enough diversity and it's not is not inclusive enough and so that's that's definitely a, an important aspect or a thing that you know because you because it really knowing the knowing people in order to get into the industry is quite significant way of doing it you know getting a lot of the friends of mine that i went to university with their fathers or their uncles were architects and they got work experience in you know friends of the families practices and that's how they got a start and if you didn't have that it's very difficult mm. to make a start and I was lucky that I did have that to an extent I mean I didn't want to draw on that too much but the but but you you make use of what you've got <laughs> absolutely I was listening to someone who I do talk to regularly, but this was actually watching a video that they did. A colleague of mine called Wojciech, who runs a social media marketing agency with his partner. So he, he started networking and he kind of was networking anyway, just to get to know people. And so he had, and he's, his, he's very suited to that personality wise. And through his networking, he ended up in a group of people one time. And one of the people was actually a leading partner in a practice that he had applied to and got refused. And this guy said to him, oh, hey, well, you should come and do your whatever it's called with us. And he said, well, actually, I did apply, but I wasn't accepted. And the guy was like, oh, OK. Anyway, a little bit further on into the event or gathering, he turned around to him and he said, do you know what? I like you. We're going to make this happen. And he actually ended up working directly with this partner. So he actually got a much higher level of experience than the people who had applied and got accepted in the normal way. So networking is is definitely, no matter what industry or business you're in, I think networking is an incredibly valuable skill for us all to learn. It, it might not always be the primary way to get clients, because I do think we ought to have, you know, two, three ways of generating those those ideal prospects that we want to be turning into paying clients. But yeah, it, it, it is important. I think sometimes what people do is they go, oh, I don't have the contacts, and then they just give up. And that happens in business too, as well. It's, you know, not just in architecture. I mean, did you see that happening with some of your colleagues? 
I've seen I've seen a lot of a lot of people come out of university and then just not get work. You know, mm. they've they've done the, the struggle to get their first year out. And so if you if you haven't got that first year of experience before you go back in for the next mm. two years, it's very it's very difficult to continue pursuing it as a career. You have to have the experience. I think maybe this is where the universities can help by facilitating that kind of networking and teaching those skills. So I don't know whether that's something they do or not. If they don't, it would be a good idea. To an extent, but I don't I don't know. I'm not there. I'm personally not that connected with the universities, really, mm. just loosely connected sometimes. But so I don't know. They didn't do that at my university. <laughs> right. I was there. We we did as a student body, we created a an architect student society sort of thing mm. and in my year we had one guy who had a lot of personal collections with some really big name architects like Dennis Lasden who was a huge like kind of brutalist architect but this guy had lots of lots of these connections with these big name people and obviously from relatively well-off family and so as a as a student society we used his connections to arrange lectures we also invited all the local architecture practices to join our student society so that they could attend mm. the lectures as well so we did manage to make our own connections that was in edinburgh i studied in edinburgh so i did have some connections at that point there but yeah i i, I came back to liverpool and, and worked with my sort of uncle i i can i see them as a they're close like that in terms of you know, my mum and dad and, and they, as a couple, lived in the same converted house and different floors <laughs> um, oh, cool. as students. So so they they were kind of like an auntie and uncle to me growing we're really close. So, yeah, that's how I got into it. He, he was my inspiration, really. Fantastic. So without naming any names, who was your worst boss and... What what might be a kind of what the flip <laughs> moment you might have experienced? My worst boss, I think he was a psychopath. I read this book called um, the what's it called? Surrounded by psychopaths, I think it's called, and it's the same guy who wrote Surrounded by Idiots, and it's a look at disc personality type profiles. Uh huh fascinating book I haven't read Surrounded by Idiots I'm curious to read that one but I read Surrounded by Psychopaths which is all about you know what your what your personality profile is in there's these the five the D I S and C I can't remember which one I think I am but <laughs> one of them and the and how you in what ways you are vulnerable to somebody who is a psychopath manipulating you mm-hmm. <laughs> So it's a really fascinating book. Anyway, at the time, I didn't think he was a psychopath. After reading that book, that's my conclusion is that that guy that I worked with was a psychopath because the worst experience really for me, that was in my last last job. And effectively, he he was actually bullying my, my project manager. So my direct line manager on the project. And so the way that he was doing that was by coming to me and kind of undermining him through me and the point that I realized that's what he was doing and because it took me a little while to realize that that's what he was doing 
when I did realize it, I was like, no, you know, I don't have any bone against, you know, he wasn't the best manager, but he was okay. And, you know, I could see that he was struggling for various reasons. And I realized that the reason that he was struggling was because this, this guy's treatment of him. So I stopped playing along. And it was really interesting because much later on, when I, I was made redundant, I was looking back through past emails in the project and I could pinpoint the day that he started bullying me was that day that I stopped being complicit in a way of him bullying my manager. And so that was his tactic really was to, this is exactly what he did with me then following that, was to go around. So I, I had a team that I was managing on, a, on the project. I was a senior architect, but, but it was very hierarchical. So I had another person that, you know, I was in a team where there were two or three managers and then above them were more managers <laughs> and another layer of hierarchy as well. So it's very, very hierarchical. What happened was then he would go around. I was I was at this middle kind of like bottom rung management, if you like. Mm-hmm. So I was the project architect. I was running the project and I had a team of very all junior members. They were all like, as I was explaining to you, you know, just just uni qualified or on the process to becoming uni qualified. So kind of thought they knew it all, some of them. <laughs> That was quite a challenge to manage them, but I can totally relate with them because I had been there myself and felt the same way at the same time. But he would then go around my juniors and ask them what I had told them to do and then would tell them to do something else or to do it differently to the way that I had told them to do it. But I was still held responsible for the delivery of the project to a standard, to meet the deadlines. And so I was having to work huge numbers of amounts of overtime to actually hit those deadlines and to get the work done that needed to be done because my team wasn't doing it. They weren't doing what I was asking them to do because he was going around. Mm. And as well as that, he actually told many of the other members of the team that I was not to be invited out to social events, to the pub for lunch times, for different things. And I, you know, you know, when you sort of like conversations go quiet when you come near and you're like, okay, what's going on? But, you know, I was getting, I was starting to feel like, I'm being paranoid. Am I being paranoid? There's something going on and I don't understand what's going on. And it wasn't until, again, after it was made redundant and then lots of truths came out of the people in the team who'd also been made redundant. And he, by the way, was the person who was grading us for redundancy, who told me, you know, well, he told us not to invite you. You weren't allowed to be invited to these things. So, uh, which, which then made me appreciate even more when one or two people had gone again against what he told them and invited me to things but yeah it was it was a really miserable existence and I and I was getting to that point of heading towards quite a dark place of of you know what is the point what's the point of being an architect what's the point even of living I got to that point of thinking those sorts of thoughts was really quite dark and I was thinking you know is it really worth being alive 
And that was at the point where I was like, what am I thinking? This is this is not right to be thinking like this. And I I knew that it was him that was causing this situation and that I was feeling bad about this situation and he was the cause of it. And I said, no, he is not going to beat me. No way am I letting him beat me. And that's where I sort of put a kind of drew the line. And fortunately, he made me redundant. (laughs) And it didn't feel fortunate at the time. It felt really rubbish. And it took me a really long time after being made redundant to pick myself up again. And it was a really tough time. You know, I was, I decided I didn't want to work for anybody else. After that experience, I, I didn't trust working for somebody else, putting all my you know, 70 hour of my week, my life energy into somebody else's benefit, somebody else taking the credit for work that I was doing, somebody else profiting from the work that I was doing. So I definitely didn't want to be in that situation again. And I wanted to have control about who I was going to work with. I wanted to be able to select that. And it, yeah, so I decided to set up my own practice and that was really hard, <laughs> really, really hard to, you know, fe- feeling very rejected. So I didn't really know very much about business at all when I started up, but I knew how to be an architect and I knew I didn't want to work for anybody else ever again. Well, those are two kind of key things there, really. <laughs> and we'll we'll start diving into the, the business side of it in a little bit. So while I'm you know, I'm sad to hear that you had that experience and glad to hear that you've actually allowed it to strengthen you and to not break you. It is amazing, isn't it? When you think, I mean, clearly this person was not the business owner, like presumably they were just a manager within the business. Yeah, because I mean, can you imagine a business owner doing that? Like they'd totally be shooting themselves in the foot. Yet managers are quite happy to do that when it's not their money that they're spending or wasting. It's not their talent that they're losing um, on purpose or otherwise because of their behaviour. So, yeah, it's it, it does beggar belief sometimes <laughs> when, you know, I, I hear a lot of stories like this, you know, certainly with similar aspects where people have had have had those. That's one of the reasons why I ask about them, actually, because I want to, you know, I want you to hear that, you know, it is possible to get through these things and to, you know, you can come out the other side of it and you can learn some very valuable lessons around that as well. So I think it's it's very powerful. And, you know, I'm grateful that you have done that. And thank you for for sharing that with us. You mentioned about, you said, well, when you first set up a business, you didn't know about the business side because no one had ever taught you. Well, you're not alone in that. (laughs) Many of my clients are in the same boat. And in fact, I was in the same boat, even though I actually had, you know, a sales and marketing background and had a business degree that didn't really prepare me for having my own small business. So what do you do at the time that you have when you're not running your business? Well, that's something that I'm still trying to figure out, to be totally honest. I'd say, obviously, coronavirus the last two years has been such a massive change that I'm still kind of recovering and sort of re regrouping and figuring out how to go forwards. I also am a single mom. I have a six-year-old. So that, you know, that is a huge responsibility. And that's 
that's my main focus really outside of my working hours and it does define what working hours I'm able to work you know I work between school drop off and school pick up Monday to Friday and I do sometimes work after he's gone to sleep but usually that's kind of coaching calls and things like that work sort of more working on my business rather than delivering client work and I don't work weekends even when I was working those 70 hour weeks actually in my last job it was my policy not to work weekends so that's that's always been a a big important thing to me to have some work-life balance and I used to do a lot of belly dancing that was my hobby and I actually became quite well semi-professional at it I actually used to do paid gigs and to teach and things like that but I the last time I performed was just before Christmas in 2019 and I have a group of friends that we we used to meet up and practice together and choreograph do group choreographies and perform together so yeah I haven't really danced until this week, this weekend, I've been clearing out a room in my house. Well, this this room that I'm working from now, I I used to work from my front living room, which is a much bigger room. And I it's taken me like two, three years to move out of there, move into this smaller room and clear out like a decade of paperwork and all sorts of stuff that has built up in that office. Fun. Because now I work online mostly. So all my work processes have completely changed and I don't need as much paper as I used to have. My printer broke and I haven't replaced it. I don't need it. So all of these things have changed in the way that I've worked. The last two years have been massively, not disruptive, but kind of like a rebirth in a way. But it's meant that a lot of things, you know, lot in terms of personal life, people who I was friendly with, I, I've gone through a whole, I always had lots of friends, you know, huge, lots of different groups of friends. And the last two years, I've kind of reassessed about, you know, where am I spending my energy? Who, who do I want to really spend time with? How do I want to spend my time? And I've thought things through a lot more. I've kind of feel like I've been in hibernation. Mm. And now is the time where I'm slowly starting to come out. Like I say, I was dancing a little bit this week in my newly cleared space. And yeah, I start and feel like this is like the spring of a new, a new, a new period of, of life. But I, I don't really have things figured out yet. I'm still I'm still kind of just figuring out how things slot in. Absolutely. Yeah. I think many of us are in that situation in terms of, okay, how's life going to be? Now things are opening up again. And I imagine you'll be belly dancing in person before too long. That sounds like a lot of fun, a lot of fun. Okay, great. Well, look, I shared some resources with you. So one of those was around how to stop undercharging and over delivering. So what what was your experience of that? Well, that's, that's something that I have been working on the last two years. That's that kind of looking at how much am I charging? Like, am I actually making any profit? Am I charging enough to be able to employ somebody else to do the work for me and make some profit? 
So I have been looking at my pricing the last over the last two years and have significantly increased some of my prices. And oh, so one example of that was my foundation package. That's the starting point. And it was, I used to call it the home design workshop. And that was initially very really quite a low cost offer it was an a sort of an entry offer to people to start working with me and I was looking back through things I used to charge 75 pound an hour for that and I would go to my client's house and travel sometimes an hour or two in each direction so a whole day for 75 pounds and then over the years I've gradually refined that service and developed it and I and it and it was pre-covid I was selling that for 495 pounds and then I transitioned to delivering that remotely online so now I do that remotely and 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 that's amazing because in theory I could do that with anybody anywhere in the world which is incredible haven't haven't done that. I did actually do a, a virtual online workshop about 10 years ago, 11 years ago with a client in New York State. So I did have that experience in my back pocket. But now my process is so much more refined, so much more developed. And, you know, it's, it's much, much better. So and that is now £1,400. So it's significantly different. But when clients who are new to me are finding me online, I'm finding that the, that £1,400, although people do spend that much money on somebody that they've just met online, I know I have, I think that for a lot of homeowners, it's not a, it's not a traditional way of working, working remotely online with an architect. People expect me to go to their homes. They don't seem to, they seem to struggle with the idea that I can do that initial work remotely at all which I can <laughs> but I understand that they struggle with it and and I feel like that 1400 is a is a leap to go from not knowing me to working with me in a way that they are perhaps uncomfortable mm-hmm. or un- uncertain about so that's where I'm at now with my business. Okay. there's two issues here so one is about having a strong market dominating position. We'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. I think the other th- part of it is about actually the, the sales process that's happening as well. And so I think there's a great opportunity for you to actually to introduce a lot more education. And I think that's, that's often where people are really missing out on helping to both attract and convert their ideal prospects. And then in terms of your market dominating position, so I know you watched another training video as well, which talks about that and talks about, you know, the things like, you know, are you saying and doing what your competitors are doing? Are the things that you're saying people will be like, well, yeah, I would hope so. (laughs) So it's really about being able to tap into those hot buttons of your ideal prospects. So like, what would you say are the top hot buttons of your ideal prospects? I think it's really interesting because I think the one of the biggest driving factors for many of the people who work with me is that their their kitchen is too small and doesn't suit their family life and they want to have more of an open plan kitchen dining situation. That's one of the biggest things that people 
seek when they work with me. So that's kind of the driving thing. But what my understanding is of where people are at when they're thinking, okay, we need to extend, we need to do something, the house doesn't work for us, is that they're looking for a transformation. And it, but it's not just, I mean, the building transformation is kind of like a physical manifestation of that, but it's actually a life transformation that they're seeking. So my process is very different to any other architect that I know of. And that comes from that those early conversations in those tents in the council housing states that I was mentioning, where it's much more collaborative, much more about me help my clients to really get clear on where their where their struggles are, where their moments of pleasure are, so that I can really understand them at a very deep level, what they need and what they desire from their home. And I always talk about having a home that supports you in living your version of your best life. And I know that a lot of architects, they don't have the experience of helping clients to create that vision they will ask questions but they'll go through this kind of iterative design process which means that they'll have a chat maybe half an hour maybe an hour chat to to start to understand what it is that they want and then they'll go away and design something and then they'll come back and they'll have another chat and then they'll so then they'll get to know a little bit more about what the client wants and then they'll go away and redesign and this can become this really long process and instead of doing that I first of all have a way of of helping my clients do what I call design your home vision so this visioning process has got some element of life coaching in that it's much more of a process of discovery exploring and and considering and evaluating assessing in on a quite a deep level what they really need and want from their home, but also, you know, in their life. How, how do they want to live their life? That's what I aim to do. And that's very different to any other architect that I know of. And certainly there are a lot of kind of what I call fake architects. Those are the people who say, well, I basically can do what an architect does. And if you ask them if they're an architect, they'll say, well, I'm basically an architect. If you push them further, then they will say, oh, no, I'm not a registered architect. But they they very much sell themselves as if they are. So I call them a fake architect. Well, you know what they say. If you think a professional is expensive, see how much an amateur costs you. <laughs> okay, so I mean, I, I'm, my head is going with all these ideas right now and, and things I'm seeing. So here's, here's what I'm seeing is that you're, you're looking for people to buy from you online. I'm not seeing what you told me on your website. So there's a mismatch between what sets you apart. Like now you have some of it on your home design page. So that's your actual introductory package that you were just talking about earlier. But when I land on your website, so what I'm seeing currently is designing eco homes that make your heart sing. Now, that's probably better than most architects out there, I would imagine. And yet I... It's not getting across the fact that, well, let me ask you a question. I just want to double check some things. You were talking about how because traditional architects don't have that vision designing process, it's a very iterative and long drawn out process. So I just want to double check. So what you're saying is you can get their design faster. And would it also work out cheaper because it's not iterative because you're able to work with them, pull out their vision and then 
put their plans together and you're not having to go through redesign, 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 redesign. <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. Because what I, well, so the, the real architects were not me. They will okay. work in an iterative process. The fake architects will say, oh, there's only one way to do it. So I, I guess that my, in terms of competitor analysis, mm. my competitors are not just other architects. No. So the, there are the other architects who are actual real architects who do this iterative design process. And what they tend to do is they'll give a, a fixed fee for one design and, an, and one amendment. And then they will charge for every subsequent amendment. And you're looking at maybe like a thousand pounds per redesign or more. And so it may, the initial charge may be like two or 3,000 for the initial design, but then you're adding another thousand and a thousand and another thousand. So ultimately it can really add up and it can take not just months, it can take years to get to wow. a point where you've got a design that you're happy with. If you if you go, if you carry on, or you might just give up at one point and go, oh, this is close enough. And then you're less likely to be really satisfied with the design because it's actually not really delivering you all the things you need. Or you do keep going and you do keep paying for the amendments to, to ultimately get a design that you are happy with. And architects are good at designing, so they'll eventually get there. But if they haven't got the... The, the they need to really understand you so so where where you have excellent communication skills you're very self-aware you completely know what you want you're very decisive and perhaps you meet an architect who also has a very similar understanding of what a good life is to you and so there's a match there and so the any assumptions that the architect makes will be reflective of of you and what you actually need which so there's a lot of jumps of possibility so then you can get a really good design from from a, a good architect okay there's so much that you're actually doing okay so but it's not coming across in your marketing and so I think that's a big part of what needs to be rectified so after watching the video where it talks about your market dominating position and the hot buttons I mean I I would you know like it sounds like, well, and this is the thing is like, it's, it's always, you got all, you always need to validate this, but I mean, you've worked with over a hundred homeowners. So, you know, like, have they worked with other, like, what's the things that you hear people complaining about with other architects? So is it, oh, it took so long, they charged more, they, I kept having to buy again and again. I mean, this is what you're describing as kind of what's going on. And so, you know, what, what I would love to see is, some things on like when people land on your homepage that they immediately can see oh wow so I can have you know I can have x in two months and you know rather than kind of six to 18 months or two years like I would also start calling traditional architects so you know like you you don't have anything on there that's warning people about fake architects and traditional architects and what the real process is like. Now, right, and I think that is something that's going to make a big, big difference. So I see you have a checklist for people to to kind of do to prepare themselves for, 
you know, the home design, but actually think about it in terms of, I know one of the things that you want to do is to increase the number of, of your ideal prospects. Well, an ideal prospect is educated. They understand the market. If you've got people who don't know any better, they're coming to your website and they would have to really dive into your website and go quite far into it to really understand how you work. And even then, you're only conveying no more than 50% of it, okay? I think there's a lot that is not being communicated in that. And I think this is probably a hangover from when you probably got were getting clients from referrals, out networking, you know, you had that person-to-person connection. But now the place, and I know place is really important to you, you need to think about, well, my place is my website. You're so right. I, I can talk about these things and if people ask me, I can explain them, but I, I don't think I have written that out very clearly. I have written it out in like social media posts and things like that. Mm. I've talked about fake architects. I've co- talked about copy-paste designs. I've talked about the iterative process, but I don't have that. I don't think I have that on my website particularly not on the home page well i mean imagine coming to your home page and 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 here's what's going to happen is people are going to have 10 architects websites open they go to google and they'll search you know architect near me and they might put in the eco part of it okay so that's another thing we've not even talked about like even before getting to the fact that you're a specialist in that and so what's you know, imagine they could on they land on your website and saw that they could have a download or a, or a video or something because that's also you know you're very personable and so for them to be able to kind of go oh look you know it it's it's this you know young woman who is able to communicate you know she's not a kind of stuffy suit type architect who may, maybe they might feel a bit intimidated by even you want to convey you on this. And, you know, like, oh, we've been so we've been talking here, you know, for quite a while now today and love to see more of that coming through on your website. I think videos would be really great to do that. You're very articulate in explaining what you do, but it's not visible on your website. But imagine if you put yourself in your customer's shoes, imagine they come to your website and they see some kind of offering that's like, what traditional architects don't tell you when they give you a fixed fee or the, you know, the the three industry secrets that will stop you getting your dream home and cost you a fortune in the process. You know, so do you see what I mean? That you could put something like that there that's going to make people sit up and take notice. Like you have to first, right? You have to first interrupt people. You know, you have to boom, get their attention. If you don't get their attention, then they're gone. They're gone to the next one and they all look the same. So what are they going to compare on when they all look the same? That's Money. true. I, I always say, you know, you have to compare apples with apples. But what do you have? What happens when you throw in a quince? It looks the same, but or they're only similar. It looks different, but it's completely different. No, no. you need to be an orange or a pomegranate or a banana but something that clearly is not an apple, okay? And it's interesting, isn't it? You were talking about the quinces. Well, it kind of looks like it. So people have to delve to find out that they're not. And that's actually what you've been doing. You've been a quince. (laughs) So 
So this is the thing is that, you know, you've got to stand out in the marketplace and, you know, it's it's your job to educate your customers, even if they don't end up working with you for whatever reason. Like, you know, you're warning them about this is how things work. I'm doing it differently. You know, if you resonate with that, great. If you don't, at least you know what questions to ask when they're talking to other people and they might go and test it out and see and then they come back and go, oh yeah, that was, you know, I downloaded your report or I did, you know, I watched your video and then I asked these other people and yeah, you were right in what you said. You know, Think how much trust that builds. You know, think about trust is something you talked about a lot earlier, you know, when you were working for the potential psychopath and how he really destroyed your trust. Why don't you take that and use that that feeling of, you know, having been betrayed. And, you know, really, in in a way, the industry is kind of betraying their potential clients because they're not educating people as to how things work and what impact is that going to have. But you've you've got that, you've got that knowledge. You can really build trust with your potential clients by doing this for them. The checklist that they can download is actually more of a workbook and I don't know whether I should. It's like a taster of my pre-preparation. So my thought with that was that, okay, people can download it. They will. It, it gives them much more pre-design preparation than other architects will give them. So if they decide to go off and work with somebody else, then they're going to be better prepared and they'll get a better design as a result of having used it. But it's nowhere as much in depth as what they would get if they actually worked with me but it's a good taster of it it spells out my framework that I work I have an eagle framework that I take people through to do that and that's that's laid out in there it's like a one little exercise for each of the EAGLE sections of the framework well I would perhaps use that in a different stage of your sales process so I think there's I think there's some work to be done in actually really getting to the heart of your market dominating position. So we've talked about a few elements of that, but I think there's more in terms of how you actually really relate this to your clients' hot buttons. And there's so there's a process I, that I bring people through when we're going through this and to see, well, okay, which are the ones that we do that? And there perhaps might even be like you've already done some innovation around how you're working. I actually think there's the opportunity for a bit more because if you going to be different be really different and you know kind of yeah how you create that so I actually think that checklist rather than being an opt-in a lead magnet as as you know as they're often called to attract people and convert them because like I mean how how good a job has that been doing in attracting leads for you I get quite mm-hmm. a lot of people who've downloaded it and they they book a fitting call with me as a result mm-hmm. of that they tell me that it's really helped them as a couple to work through it. And it does, it does, I do get clients who have downloaded it. I don't know what the conversion rate is exactly on it. I was just, I was just going to ask, you know, how many people visit and how many people actually download it. I'm guaranteeing you that you will probably increase the, the, the kinds of thing I was talking about for a download. You're going to have 10x that conversion rate at least because it's going to be so much more appealing to people because they always want to know what don't I know and this this looks like it's really important that I need to know this so that I don't get and it's not even about the traditional architects like they're not going out to rip people off 
it's just the way the system works. But if people don't know that's how the system works, they're going to get caught out. They think, oh, I've got a fixed fee from this architect. Brilliant. That's going to get me what I want. And then down the road, they're like, oh my God, I've, you know, it's now cost me three times as much as I thought it was. And that means we've got less budget to do things. And, you know, so plus the length of time that it has taken it as, as well. You know, that's a, that's a, a big, big factor. So, yeah, so for me, I definitely would be looking at your market dominating position and then the your lead generation and sales process. And, you know, imagine going out to a networking event and being able to say, I have this, blah, 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 whatever it is that's, that, you know, tells people about, you know, the, the questions they need to ask or how to make sure they don't get ripped off or whatever, whatever the kind of title ends up being. Do you think that would get a better response? I don't know, maybe. I'm not sure, to be honest. When I go to networking events, I don't tend to offer people things. People just tend to have a chat and then and then book with me or come back to me late, you know, at a later date if they're interested or refer me, you know, refer other people they know on to me. So I think in, from networking events, I tend to have reasonably high conversion rate, I suppose. I haven't done networking events properly for a while now, but, you know, when I used to go to them, well, they're, they're all, they're happening again online. I've been to some, I was at a whole, you know, Women's Day event yesterday. I spent the whole day there meeting lots and lots of people, lots of women. <laughs> so, you know, the face-to-face networking is back on. There's like online networking has been happening all through. And, you know, I, I think it'd be really good for you to go out and start testing some of these messages. And I think there's also in terms of, you know, how you actually attract more, I would also be looking at, well, who are you actually being asked to refer to? Because, you know, when you ask to be referred to your ideal clients, that and that's and you get that, that's great. When you actually ask to be referred to someone who can then refer you many people, that's like 10 times better. <laughs> because, you know, building those relationships are going to generate so, so much more for you. That's a the kind of lead generation side of it is, is a, a kind of whole other topic. But I, th- I think for you, for you, I think there's the sales process side of it in terms of, well, the kind of partly lead generation leading into that sales process, how that ties together, I think is going to be really key for you to reevaluate and think about, okay, so if I'm if my positioning is this, then how do I integrate that into what I'm doing? So you've already got a lot way there with it, with your home design offer. But actually, what happens before that? And then what happens afterwards? So and how can you actually improve each of those to make the whole a better experience for your clients and actually an easier way for you to be able to convert people? So how do you feel about that? Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think there's I feel a bit like I'm like the best kept secret. <laughs> you know, I've been I've been writing a book this last over the last two years as well, which I'm I'm like halfway through the the second edit the, of the second draft. And so I'm kind of like I'm nearly there and my working title is Design Your Home Vision. And so it's it's all about this that I feel is like relatively innovative really within the certainly architects do it a bit more for very big corporate clients like for home not home office for office big corporate office Mm. fit out projects then architects do tend to have a kind of a, a what we call a briefing process but within the the smaller residential 
you know, private domestic sphere, it's not done at all. And that and there aren't any books about it either. So homeowners don't know about this. And that's why I felt it was really important to write a book. So I've I've written the book. I'm on the on the way to having it finished. Fantastic. I think that that's going to really help so many people. It totally will. It's going to massively increase your authority. It's a great excuse for you to be able to get into the media, appear on other podcasts, all of that. And I think what I'd really love for you to do is to have your market dominating position and your lead generation sales process in place before that is published because it's I remember hearing about somebody who he got on Oprah and he had he had a book but it somehow it happened really fast and unexpectedly and he didn't have that that those kind of systems and processes in place and he was gutted because he's probably the only one he said that he went on Oprah and then sold hardly anything because stuff wasn't in place. It wasn't ready for it. I've always been worried about is like, oh, you know, like I could, I could handle now. Now I have got some really good processes in place. I've got some really good automation set up so that that handles bookings and, and that can handle, you know, quite a volume of bookings. But before I had that in place, I was always worried like, OK, I can handle what I've got now, but if I... If I had like a massive influx of people, <laughs> I had, for example, a one of my projects was in the Ideal Homes magazine, and I had quite a lot of inquiries mm. as a result of that. And yeah. but but not so many that I couldn't handle. But it was it was still you know like a nice little flutter in. But that sort of fear of like you know I had a coach once say to me, well, what if you did have a hundred people suddenly want to work with you? What would you do? How would you manage it? And then uh, at that point, I was like. I wouldn't be able to handle it. But right now I do, I think I do have the processes in place to, that would, would be able to manage it. So I kind of, but I think you're right that I'm not, it's not clear enough to people about why. It's the, yeah, it's it's all those steps, it's the conversion around that. So, so yeah, I think getting that in place will really be helpful for you. I mean, this is a really exciting time for your business. I can see so much potential. I love what you're doing. I think it's a great you know, kind of innovative approach that's really looking after your clients. So we didn't even get into the, the kind of eco-friendly side of it. Unfortunately, we've run out of time <laughs> now, so we need, we need to kind of wrap things up. But, you know, I think you've got some steps there that you can put in place. And of course, as part of that market domination position, bring the eco side into it, because I know that's where you really have a passion and that, that will come through. And I think that's really going to help you to be able to attract and convert, you know, your ideal clients and to be able to do so a lot more profitably. And of course, the book then is another, you know, that's like adding fuel to the fire, but you want the fire kind of burning nicely, you know, before you start adding fuel to it. Yeah, I think that's really key for you. So, so I'd love to know what's been most significant for you in our discussion here today. I think that your you pointing out that I need to be really much, much clearer about that idea of calling them the traditional architects, because it's so true. They are, they do tend to be very traditional minded, traditional in their approach. And not, they're not bad, but they just, they've, yep. they're following a process that they know that's tried, that's true. And, but, you know, most homeowners do a house extension for the very first time and don't tend to do it again some do but not many and so so it's a completely mysterious process the whole thing it can be really worrying and fearful 
So having something like you say that really explains the difference between traditional architects, fake architects, and then what I do that is different is something that I have been trying to do in social media posts, but I think you're right, it's not clear enough on my website at all. You can definitely do more of that. Definitely, because the social media posts are here and gone. You know, and also the more people that you get opting in for the great education you're going to give them, then you're able to then carrying on communicating with those people. Because as you might remember from the video, the training video I sent you, there's only like kind of one to three percent ready to buy when they actually land on your website or kind of come across you. So, well, what happens? You know, you need to educate those people and be able to stay in touch with them. And if they bounce off because they're not seeing Oh, okay. Yeah. Apple, 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 Apple. (laughs) They're just moving from side to side and kind of someone who shouts about being the cheapest or whoever, you know. So yeah, yeah, there's, there was a few other things as well. Like I think there's a lot of stuff you've done quite well on, on your sales page for the home design, but some of those elements you need to bring into your homepage as well. So things like social proof and there was something else. Yeah. And just, I think what you just said there about it being a mysterious process, they probably haven't done it before. And it can be a fearful thing is, and this is the thing, this is not about making people more fearful. This is about actually taking the fear away. I think sometimes when people, when I talk about these kinds of things, they're like, oh, well, I don't want to make them scared. They're already feeling that. (laughs) So let's take that away. Let's educate them. And I think, I think you've already you've got something that's working well, but it's also stopping you from getting to the next level. And I know that you want to do that. I'd love to see you do that. I'm sure there are many homeowners who would much rather experience your approach than the traditional approach or the fake architects approach. So so, yeah, go do it. Well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you here today, Jane. And yeah, go. Do you want to let people know where they can find you? Oh, yeah, sure. Thanks, Una. Yeah, my website <laughs> that is going to come be rewritten shortly <laughs> is i-architect.co.uk. And you can find me on most places on the internet. I have a YouTube channel, which is iArchitectUK. I am on Twitter and Instagram as Architect Jane. And I have a Facebook page for iArchitect UK as well. So I'm I'm most places. Lovely. And we'll drop those into the show notes for you as well. So do go connect with Jane and let her know what you thought of what you've heard here today. Thank you for joining me here, Jane, and sharing your life and your business with our listeners. And uh, I look forward to talking with you again soon. Bye for now. That's all for today, folks. Have you subscribed to get more of this juicy goodness for your business? If not, tap that button now. Remember to check the description for links mentioned in this episode. Did you enjoy and find value in this free broadcast? I want you to know that I go so much deeper into the topics discussed with coaching and workshops based on my impact-driven growth model. Want to know how I can help you to double your profits without spending a penny more on marketing or ads? Let's arrange to hop on a call to discuss your goals and challenges and I'll show you how. Plus, when you book, I'll send you some free training videos too. Go book now at creativeflow.tv forward slash call with Una. That's creativeflow.tv forward slash call with Una.